HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies, but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS, combined with the other top five meat companies, exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview extraordinary women who work in the world of food and who've made food their life. Today, I have two women who are here from Jamaica, one of my favorite places on the planet. Actually, I've spent um, very, very happy times there with my family. These women are going to tell us the stories of their great-grandmothers, their grandmothers, I don't know about their mother, themselves, and cooking and bringing bringing joy to people, but also honoring their heritage. So if you'll join me in welcoming Suzanne and Michelle Rousseau. Hi. Hi there. How are you? I'm great. I was so excited to uh, read your book, Provisions, which is just being published this very minute, and um, and to get a little bit of your family history and the recipes themselves being the vehicle for bringing the past into the present through your very particular eyes. I, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about your great-grandmother, who seemed like such a huge inspiration for this book. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we would indeed. be thrilled to talk about her. Um, Martha Matilda Briggs is our great-grandmother on our father's side of the family. Um, she's a woman that we had heard about sort of as growing up as children, sort of in the recesses of our mind. It wasn't sort of like everyday conversation. Um, we always had, we had a very, very strong, fairly formidable grandmother. Her, we called her Manga, but her name was Enid, um, Enid Rousseau. And Manga's mother was Martha Matilda. So we would hear, I think we, I remember hearing about her really because she seemed to have been this fantastic baker. She had this um, business that was famous for its patties, Briggs patties. Um, she was a stable, strong, imposing woman. My Uncle Pat once um, remembers because he would sometimes go there after school to get patties. So he has more memory of her than my father, who would be the youngest child. Um, but we didn't know much else about her. And a big part, I think, of the inspiration for provisions outside of the food side was that we discovered in we're looking and researching our first book, Caribbean Potluck, um, this incredible sort of 
details and stories about her life that I don't even think members of our family understood or appreciated that made us sort of have this moment of reckoning about our own life in both our own life and sort of female lineage, but also even our own story in the food business that perhaps, um, you know, what we thought we had come to by chance was really in so very much a destiny or a completing a circle. Um, and that we really were, we had to sort of honor her life in a way we felt that had not been um, done. And that sort of was a big part of the impetus in the storytelling and the female stories of provisions. So tell me, what, what are the, some of the stories that you ended up hearing, you know, and how did you find those stories? Um, so when we, once we kind of were, we had finished um, Caribbean Potluck and we had done this research and we saw that there was just all this information about her that was uncovered because we, we did have family members who tried to look back and, and, and recreate the original recipe for her famous patty. And, what what um, is the recipe for the patty? Oh, we don't know it actually. You we don't? No. So we've seen, we've found a, a sort of a written, a handwritten recipe from our grandmother that was probably written in the 70s for our mother to use, but it is not um, something that is documented or that actually works because it's kind of sort of, you know, these these random things like add this, water but... and mix in <laughs> and use till and it's kidney sweet and all these types of things. But when um, after that book we decided to, to, to do provisions, I started to, to research her a bit more and what came to light one day, who knows why or how, was um, just one little nugget of information that led me to a series of, of articles and stories and and you know things in the newspaper, the the local newspaper, the Jamaica so Greener. She, so she was recovered all the time. I mean, people. Yes. She was written about. She was written about, or she posted or put ads in the paper. So what you have is a series oh. of articles that start from her very first business, which was a Royal Cafe down on Barry Street, and it was opposite Myers and Fletcher, which was the number one law firm at the, of the day. And I think all of the attorneys used to dine there. So one of the first um, things that I found was uh, a court case where she was defended by Norman Washington Manley for the revoking of her tavern license. That led to a series of other things. She sued somebody for a hundred pounds for driving or reversing over her foot oh, yeah. um, yes indeed <laughs> and in that but then you know you uncovered the details through that because in the story they said that she claims that she lost income because she would make x amount of patties a day at five pence per patty and she would stand on her feet for x hours so that course that case was settled and i think she won 70 pounds for that and then you know, um, just notices to say that her new business had been relocated, that she was no longer owner of this location, Royal Cafe, and it was owned by another woman by the name of Amy Levy, that she was no longer in business with this person. And so she just was clearly a very um, strong and, and a strident would be a word that uh, would come to mind, woman in terms of just defending herself and standing her ground in but an era where women weren't really in business a lot, you know? I wonder where that came from. Like, is there is there a family trait of feistiness? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> without a doubt. Certainly on the Russo side, which is on my father's side. I mean, my grandmother Manga was known um, in her day to hold courts in her apartment. And if you came in with an opposing political opinion, you were summarily dismissed and kicked out of the apartment because she was a staunch defender of um, the People's National Party and the manly, the manly sort of consciousness. Um, and I think that very much would be a legacy that, you know, she must have inherited from her own mother. Um, Martha Matilda was obviously a woman in a time when there were very few colored women that would have been business owners. A successful business owner and entrepreneur she had multiple businesses it wasn't just one it morphed over time into different sort of manifestations um i mean even in local literature uh she's referred to like there is a charles hyatt memoir who is mm-hmm. a well-known um playwright and author in jamaica who refers in one of his plays to a briggs patty being the most sort of revered coveted. and coveted patty in, in the of the time and you had to save all your money to get it because it was just so delicious um, so she clearly was this sort of figure that, um, you know, sort of defied the odds at a time and societally it would have not been that way. Um, it was clear to us too from Michelle's historical research into all of the um, birth records and all of this that even though that she had, you know, six or seven children, um, I don't think she actually was ever married. And she had various different, you know, her. it was clear based off of the the records that we found online with the health certificates, health, birth certificates, birth certificates forgive me, not health, that she was at different points, you know, a laundress or a seamstress, and then eventually seemed to have worked her way 
to this other kind of career that then became a, a very significant, you know, businesswoman with a real career and was, you know, renowned for her skill, which was and actually her culinary skill. Yes, and <laughs> fascinatingly, what um, what my our uncle, my father's brother, said to us is that which is not evidenced anywhere, but that at one point she owned three houses on this street called Retirement Road, one in which she, she lived upstairs and she had her restaurant on the ground floor, but she also had two other locations that she leased out. So to be, you know, a, a black woman, single, independent, and an entrepreneur who rubbed shoulders with the likes of Norman Washington Manley and, and um, you know, and, and other barristers of the day would have, was, was kind of fascinating, to be honest, because I don't think that there are very many um, women who have a history like that and if it did exist that has been documented in such a way and now you get to document some of it through the food but apparently not through the patty not through the patty no (laughs) and and so um you became restaurateurs and did that feel like you were fulfilling a destiny you said it became clearer that you (laughs) you were but you didn't even really know it I, i don't think we knew that until this, I don't think we knew that we were fulfilling a dex destiny or becoming coming full circle until we did Caribbean potluck. I think until then, um, we just went along. I don't know, maybe it's you know, youth and just sort of you know, lack of knowledge and wisdom, thinking that we were just doing a job that we had somehow kind of found our way to that we kind of had a, I guess, a skill at that we were good at doing, but that there was this deep sort of connection to the female line, to this lineage to this legacy of women, of women who had nurtured and cooked, but also had done the same business. That was, I think, very much not aware to either one of us. And I think, I'm not even sure if it was aware to the members of the family until I think we began to talk yeah. about it. And I think for us both, um, you know, it was very much a, a, a deep sense of personal um um, need and desire to honor this and honor her and to honor probably so many other women like her whose stories were not recognized or told and whose legacy that, you know, was left sort of to just meander and sort of and, and disappear into the ethers. Um, so I think for both of us, that felt like a very compelling and important um, narrative to tell. So I, in the book, you say that you dreamt um, of, of her what was it like did you literally each have a dream and then you woke up and you said to each other at one time or another can you believe what i dreamed um yes we both dreamt actually separately at different times um mine was uh, was around i think mine was with my my grandmother actually and we were sitting on a table playing chess or checkers or whatever and and she was writing something down and whatever for whatever reason i didn't remember the details of the dream but when i woke up that morning I was like, oh, I know what to search. And I just opened my computer and that's the day that I found like all the stuff, like the 16, I mean, I think between the year of 1929 and the 1944, there are 13 to 16 mentions of her in, in the local paper. And what, I think there had been a missing, you know, a missing search word. I don't know if it was the name of the original restaurant or whatever it was, but I woke up and somehow I just found it. And I think... Um, Suzanne's dream was a bit different and 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 but in many ways we felt that we were channeling them through the work but also this desire like I had a very deep-seated desire to 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 just tell these stories before it was too late like I felt like we needed to say it as quickly as we could get it out as quickly as we could I don't know how what was your dream um I had two dreams. One was a very specific dream with our grandmother, um, Manga, who we called Manga. She was standing at the bottom of my staircase at home, so beautifully dressed, like she was just luminous. And it said she was like almost there with me and she got in the car, she drove with me somewhere where I met Michelle. And it wasn't like there was a specific message, but I just was like, almost like I was talking to her and she was listening and we were in this conversation um, until I got to the point where Michelle joined and I woke up in the morning and I said, Manga had never ever come to me like that. I'd never wow. ever seen her like this. And she was so beautiful. And I thought, oh my God, what is she saying? What is the message? And that was sort of the first one. And then, and I think there were a couple, you know, months apart, sort of in between sort of the first book and the second book. They were not all at the same time. But the dream with, and then I dreamt about actually Ma Briggs, Martha Briggs as mm-hmm. well. And it was just like I felt like I had stepped into this. It was like there was a sense of being in some kind of 
very spiritual sacred temple or space and it's like i remember coming across a threshold like a doorway and there was this sense of her presence there and her her energy with me and a kind of vague visual of her which we have a photograph of so i knew it and that she was there with me and that there was this crossing over this threshold that was the dream with her and i think all of those um messages and michelle's at different points were just all signs i think that we took when we began the work that we were being called upon to trans to translate this, these stories because i dreamt about my other aunt my aunt hyacinth winsome who would be my grandmother's sister's uh, twin sister's daughter and someone that was very 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 close to us um who died some years ago she i've also dreamt about her even in this and uh, last year and this year i mean very much i would say during the writing we felt like we had a a panel of women, women surrounding us, women, female ancestors, and it was almost like they were they were speaking to us throughout the process. Because even as we as we evolved the story and it changed, you know, it it started one way, and it, obviously as you keep writing, it begins to write itself. You know, it reveals itself as we go along, and we always had this sense of, for me, it was a vision of a panel of women seated, um, you know, and. Just and what were they doing? I, I just I love that notion of being <laughs> surrounded by a panel of women. Yes. And um and what did they bring to you? You know, was it confidence or just you know, which would be keep going, you're on the right track I, or for me like, it felt very much like I mean, I suppose for each of us it would be different, but for me it felt like a collective memory. There was a sense of of in the retelling, I almost felt like I was there. So there was definitely, okay, is this my past life? Is this someone else's past life? It was very much this um, this energy of of a knowing is what I would say, a, a deep a deep deep knowing, um, an ability to find the, the the untold aspects of the from the historical perspective for me now, um, the untold parts of the story that were, were there but not said. So by reading what was said and, what, and, 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 and looking at what was not said, kind of finding this truth in there. And of course, a lot of that is personal interpretation, but it felt, it felt very, very um, logical, you know, um, like the, to draw this particular conclusions to kind of get to where we ended up. It just felt like we were being guided and just told, you know, no, no look there. And do you felt the same way? Uh, no, I was different. <laughs> Michelle and I are very different. different. Like we're, we're different both sides. very connected, but we sort of we get different. I'm very very visual, so um, I would say for me, I got a very clear visual of what I needed to do and how the book needed to look. <laughs> I got this very very just very clear sort of understanding that this needed to be a beautiful book, it needed to be a feminine book, it needed to be refined, it needed to show this beautiful side to life in the region and to these these the lives of these women because it was important to make it be known in a beautiful way. And so I got this very clear understanding that, oh, I need to get all the china from my mother. I need to go to Aunt, this Aunt Winsome's china. I need to ask Aunt Hester for her stuff. I need to go and ask Mrs. Donaldson, all these elders. I need to, you know, go and look at, you know, antique stores because it really felt um, compelling to tell the visual narrative in a way that A, had not been told, because I think you often have this very rustic, very sort of roadside sort of aspect to the portrayal of Caribbean food, which in part is true, but is not the only truth. But we, I needed to show a very clear visual of a domestic life, of the way that, you know, tables are set often and dined at in you know special occasions at Christmas and at you know holidays or special dinners but also that these things and these pieces of you know china and glassware were actually heirloom pieces that they themselves had used and dined at so it continued through that legacy of you know of handed down pieces that carried within them their own story by the many meals that had been set at tables where they had gathered and so I think that was more my very very clear um, sense and I think we we're different in that we're both I think very connected um, spiritually to the work and I think we just are in our process because of our own personal work and ourselves have become very in tune but I think we receive it differently and I think hence the collaboration um, brings forth a sort of two-sided sort of narrative because we both then can come together with what do you think and what do you think? And then I think we were, were able to expand it from that place. Um, and then we, I think, both felt that we needed to start to incorporate other women's stories. Talk to the women that in our lives uh, had made an impact by what they had cooked. 
uh, who we, whose meals we'd had or whose drinks or whatever that somehow just stood out in your memory as this very valuable part of your own life um, that often tells, I think, so the stories of so many of our lives. Um, and then I think that we both got that very, very clearly. Right. So because a lot of the recipes in the book are your own and you've up, upgraded, updated, whatever, some classic recipes. But then, you know, someone down the street makes an incredible well, you'll have to tell Chubby me. Or jazz, yeah. jam, or, or the, or yeah. So I, there was a there was a there was a way in which we felt we just to 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 tell the stories from the perspective of women and through their voice throughout the generations. So even when we looked at modern recipes, um, we had been reading a lot of these older cookbooks, you know, 18th century cookbooks. And, it and was, are there many Jamaican, or you also spent time in Trinidad? Yeah, um, yeah. There, are, there are very few actually. And there's um, a, a lot of these traditions were orally and manually passed down, you know, from, from, from mother to aunt to, to niece, to, to daughter. So a lot of it that would be discussed in classic cookbooks of the day, in, in particular one that we used, um, has references to some of the simpler dishes, but they don't <laughs> give recipes for that. So there are recipes for more formal things. They spend a lot of time talking about the ingredients themselves. Um, and, uh, and you know, so for us, even that com combined with the modern stories of the women who, um, you know, cooked certain recipes for us, as well as dishes that you know that found inspiration from an 18th century cookbook like a cocoa fritter or you know there was the, you know they speak about avocado at breakfast things like yeah. that that we said okay well we'll take that and we'll do a modern version of that but the inspiration largely came from not only how we ate but also how we saw that they were talking about the food and describing the ingredients and and you know talking about the meals that they had and the way they had meals the way they dined the setting the environment and you know the dishes and the china were very much a big part of that in in that for many of these women, you know, they were not allowed a domestic life. And so when the post-emancipation, you know, the home, domesticity, the refinement of the China and the crystal and the family was very, very important. So, so many families, even if they could not afford to have an entire, you know, set of China or silver from England, may have had one good cup, one good glass, you know, one dish that they would have used for special occasions. So that then brought into to play not only, you know, Suzanne's visual, which we didn't discuss before, but that's kind of how the stories come together with us, you know. So we're talking, I'm doing this part of the research and she's visualizing it that way. And then we're like, oh, but there's the link, there's a connection. And then it was also that this is how we also eat it. So, you know, you may roast a, a, a breadfruit on an open flame, but you're going to serve it on a silver platter or a, a beautiful china plate. So um, I think all of that wove itself in. And then the personal stories of the, of the relatives and the friends and the dishes they cooked were, were also very important in that. I, I do think that bringing the elegance that the two of you have that's in the book and in your lives is so important because it's true that so much of the reporting about Jamaica and what people talk about is the great roadside jerk. And, you know, everybody's competing to have the best jerk recipe, which is fantastic, don't get me wrong. But your book is about all of the ingredients, which is a very modern way to think about food, of course, and it's the way probably your family's been thinking about it forever. Like, what do we have? Mm -hmm. You know, and so um, the recipes I found to be, except for something like breadfruit, where I was like, hmm, where am I going to find breadfruit? <laughs> but there's, you know, coconut and lime and all of the ingredients that would have been easy to get that form the basis of the, the recipes. Um, and so I was actually, it made me think about the avocado, when you just said avocado, mm -hmm. um, which was called like an alligator pear. Yeah, or alligator pear or zabuka from zabuka. Trinidad. And then you know, Simon's pear is like the most like esteemed, most prized pear or avocado you can eat because it's this beautiful, big, I mean, it's about four times the size of the one you get here. And one slice Bright is probably green, the third sweet. of a small one, but it is the most delicious texture and consistency. And it bears at a particular time of year. And, you know, when you when it's in season, I mean, everybody has pear at the table with every meal. So, you know, we tend to eat, you know, while avocado toast is now a real thing. We have always eaten avocado or pear, as we call it, as a platter of something served with every meal that you eat, whether at breakfast with ackee and saltfish and plantain and johnny cakes and blah, blah, or 
at Christmas dinner, we'll have a beef wellington and a roast leg of lamb and we'll have rice and peas and we'll have candied sweet potato and we'll have a great salad and we'll have a tray of pear and we'll have planting in <laughs> rum. <laughs> so it's yeah. in a way very sophisticated, you know, and um, I think that felt like um, a very important narrative to tell because I don't think it's told and I think what has happened is that Jamaican cuisine and by extension the regional cuisine has been lumped into this sort of like jerk and patties or these hyper casual you know sort of roadside versions of how we eat and dine and it's really not the truth I mean jerk chicken is something that we consume pr probably out of you know on the roadside on the way to the country on a Sunday or as a snack after a fete or something that is not the way we sort of eat in our day-to-day -day lives or you know consume the ingredients and I think the other important story I think we both felt what we wanted to sort of tell but also showcase was that the ingredients themselves are throughout the region but they have be, they can be presented in extremely modern and elegant and sophisticated ways for any kind of nationality dining outside of the region and I think for us the, the, the cuisine has been sort of stuck into this one-dimensional portrayal that really doesn't appeal to anybody because they feel that it's <laughs> unaccessible. Um, and I think for us, we wanted to really show the ingredients, but show the myriad of different ways that not only we eat them, but that they can they can be consumed outside of Jamaica, in Jamaica, in Timbuktu, in Africa, or wherever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of Africa, of course, there's tremendous African roots. And then mm -hmm. um, also thinking about all of the people who've come to Jamaica and left an imprint on the cuisine. Absolutely. So it's not yeah. like it's one it's one thing yeah. and it's represented so often as one thing we're gonna um take a break soon and we'll talk about food after the break but i have to just ask you mm -hmm. because um two sisters writing a cookbook speaking to the ancestors you that <laughs> sounds um it sounds like you've done it really nicely and easily <laughs> but when you you're and you're two years apart mm -hmm. when you were growing up were you close sisters were you combative sisters is it i mean no you were in business together running a restaurant for 25 years so clearly you're close enough mm -hmm. um and you're on two different sides of the coin but tell me like is there you know some memorable incident of your childhood that just says it all like what set you up for today <laughs> i'm sure we each have different memories um <laughs> I would say we were close sisters. Um, uh, there's a picture which, uh, to me, is, is um, <laughs> um, indicative of, of our relationship. Of when I was probably I don't know one, and Suzanne was three, and we're sitting on a step, and she has her arm around me like mine, you know, <laughs> this is my dolly. Um, but we were, you know, I think siblings can be close and not close. I think the, the, the luckily for us, we're very different, but we like the same things, and I think our personalities. Um, mesh well together so we've always traveled very well together so even as we were growing up and we were doing different things and what have you um, you know we you know when you think of someone that's a good travel partner or the person that you want to go to the theater with or you wanted to select a restaurant with we always wanted to do the same kinds of things so and we have a lot of fun together I mean at the end of the day like all siblings we clash I'm sure she will have different um, <laughs> different versions or memories of, of our childhood but I think what has has always stood out throughout was that we get along, we laugh, we have a lot of fun, you know, we love to dance, we love to celebrate, we like to, we just enjoy life and our time and each other and we don't take everything too seriously. So that allows us to have that space, you know. Were your parents surprised that you ended up doing something together? Um, I don't know, because I think my parents encouraged the closeness. Um, I think we were brought up very much that family and family relationships are important. Um, to the point sometimes we're like, okay, enough family now, thank you. Um, but I think um, they encouraged, I think the one, the gift I think our parents have has given us that I think you only realize with way age and wisdom is that they really um, did not define a limit on who we could be and what we could do. They really have supported and were supportive of every sort of nuance and sort of mad idea. And I don't think, to be fair, they understood it always. I think when we said we wanted to do a cookbook or a television show or any of those things that were just outside of the realm of their knowledge or awareness, they kind of probably thought, mm, whatever, they're kind of not, that's never, never going to work out for them. <laughs> but they encouraged us to do it. And um, I think they're kind of amazed. And I think probably blown away by the end result and <laughs> proud at the same time. Um, and I think they they encouraged us to be close. And there was a, probably a couple of years where we weren't as close when we were sort of in our mid-30s where, you know, there's always family dynamics that you have to work through. And um, I think we both did a fair amount of work on ourselves and kind of be, were able to come back to a place where we respect each other and have boundaries in the relationship, but also understand 
the gift of a what we're both good at doing but i think what we have become very good at an understanding about ourselves is that in some way whether it's by divine intention or magic or what we create together and i think we understand how we create together and that is a very powerful thing and i think so where we always went along in our business life and even as our kids just as friends hanging out and, and enjoying the same things we didn't understand that in that space of just doing something because we like to do it or because it interested us there was this kind of way in which we can kind of like put together a narrative of our story or a business or a whatever or an event or a dinner that's just uniquely our spin that somehow somebody else is going to value and i think what the last few years have done with our work in this product in production and in public in publishing is that we have become very good and very clear about what we know that we do together that others don't and mm -hmm. what is our sort of own unique mm -hmm. sort of spin or language or magic that we can create um and i, I mean th i think that is that is the basis of any yeah sort of business that will work not just the collaboration part but knowing why you're different i mean yeah. two other people might do a cookbook and they might you know elevate recipes but they're never gonna come at it particularly since there's two different ideas in one. You have to be very clear about what you're each individually good at. And even if there are spaces that, that, that collide or cross over, you know, we, 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 did, we have determined amongst ourselves what section or what part we're going to deal with. And then that allows for, you know, an independent thought within your own space that then becomes a collaborative thought once you start to put the work together. But at the same time, we also agreed in business that if we don't both agree to do something, it's a no. So, you know, we kind of set that kind of boundary when if we're doing projects together or jointly that we both have to be 100% on board or the answer is just a no. And so I think that creates, you have to put boundaries in place in, in, in family relationships and certainly in business relationships even more so. And what we have become very, very strong at and, and very good at doing is creating that space where there's, this is the part that we do together, this is the part I do, that's the part you do, and then here's the whole. And um, and that's that's actually when it gets really good, you know. Right, I think that's great universal advice, right? Because for both people to have no be no, mm -hmm. um, that sort of probably eliminates a certain amount of conflict mm -hmm. or somebody doing something half-heartedly like I doing I'm doing it just for you you don't end yeah. up yeah and I think you start space. to trust um I think you also you know because like along the way there's been a lot of failures and mistakes as well so I think you I think over the course of the years that we've worked together we've also become a lot more confident in understanding okay this is what we know we know how to do well that nobody else does this is the thing that we can do so you step you start to really refine then what you stay away from and therefore what do you put your energies into and so your energies are then rewarded so what what would you say has been a failure that um you've had to overcome and that you learned from hmm good question um you know in business in business Failures are always opportunities to learn. So, you know, I don't know that I would perceive any of them as failures, but not all businesses that we have done or projects that we have taken on have been as successful. Um, I'm not, no individual one is jumping to mind right now. There's, there are many, <laughs> but um, let me think about it. Well, I mean, I think that with our first, the first part of our business life, we, we started Ciao Bella and Cafe Bella. There was a period that we decided to come out of the restaurant and go into catering. And I think in that middle road of like not being sure, there were some mistaken, you know, we made some mistakes. I think then we went into catering in a full-time capacity and had to sort of hit the ground running and learn it just the hard slog it out way. Um, you know, some not every event you do was uh, was a we had an event with a huge event with like I don't remember how many yes, people was, and like something was, the lobster went off or something and it was just like a pure a drama. For 850 people. I oh remember. my goodness! All the from an oh, off-site off. location. <laughs> um, and then we had I think you know I think we also had a period where we didn't actually know what the answer was. I mean, if I say about failure, I think that there was a period where we were significantly I think burnt out for different reasons. I actually, my, I got divorced. So that was a huge failing I felt at the time on my part. That was a significant part of my own personal learning and growth. And so I've had to sort of figure out a lot as a single mother with two sons and do a lot of my own personal, you know, work on myself, which in the end I have no regrets about because I think they've all been gifts to me, but they, it didn't mean that they weren't painful. 
Um, and it there certainly is a way to make you loss. stop. Yeah, it certainly makes you stop and reevaluate. So I think the person I am today is absolutely not the person I was 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Um, I'm, I'm far better than I am, but it was painfully one, if you understand. And I think that there was a period where with all of that for me and different things for Michelle, um, it, we didn't really know what the path was. So I think there was probably a chunk of about two and a half years where we just did not know. We, we, we decided we didn't want to be in rest catering anymore, but we did not know what the next thing was and how to get there. Interestingly, <laughs> interestingly it was that break that, that kind of led to this uh, manifestation because in that break, that period where we were thinking nothing is working, I had struggled with some depression and I had gone through some things. We took we took a, a sort of a, a pause and that's when I came to New York to study yoga for a year and we met our literary agent, you know, through a mutual friend in the yoga community and who was a published author introduced us to Joy Tutela from David Black, who at the time we didn't know who she was, but then it turned out to be... I remember calling Suzanne, I'm like, so I had coffee with her and she said she wants to sign us, but I'm going to send her an email and make sure that she, knows. she said it for real. So I, wrote, so, I wrote to, so I wrote to Joy, I said, dear Joy, thank you so much for agreeing to sign us to your agency, right? And then, and then at which point I got home and then I Googled her, I was like, oh my gosh, she's big, you know? That's so that great. That was sort of crazy. It was crazy. And then crazy. the thing about it, I think... At that point, when you were sort of in the sort of space of like nowhere and nothing, and like what are we doing? Is our la- entire life been a failing? Our work been a waste of time? An external voice or an external perspective that is not connected to Jamaica or to you or anything, who validates something about the vision you had, was a kind of an affirmation of something Absolutely. so much bigger than either of us could have ever understood. Because it kind of it it was that sort of tipping of the scale of okay, maybe we were right in telling the story this way. Maybe we were right in what we feel we can do. Mm-hmm. Maybe we were right in that, you know, there is more work for us to do other than just slogging it out, catering for 2,000 people at Cricket World Cup, <laughs> um, which is like, you know, no joy after a time. No. So I think the joy was lost. And, it, at that, and I think if you look back at it now, that was 2011, 12, 13. The joy was gone and we were seeking for work that had higher purpose. Um, that was reflective of our own personal um, evolution and um, that needed to have more. We, we had to you know, had have had a service to it or it had something bigger that we were doing. Yeah. It needed and to be soulful work, whereas we were doing much more, you know, just, you know, going through the, the steps every day to get and, paid. and not necessarily being yeah. deliberate and conscious and, and choosing the kind of work we wanted to do. And so the way that you got from being sort of lost mm-hmm. to mostly being found was patience um a little bit of divine intervention and a lot and of perseverance and, for pers- sure. perseverance, and some pers- yes. a lot of personal work um i did a few good years of therapy in jamaica with that. a very good therapist as did michelle we had an amazing coach like a woman that we worked with each independently for about a year year and a half um, that was very transformative stuff work because it asked you to really start to look at yourself and be deliberate in your choices your limitations your weaknesses your insecurities but also the vision for yourself the kind of life you were trying to in many create in many ways in my mind I see our life as before New York and after New York because I think there was such a dramatic shift individually collectively in our business in our consciousness that we kind of shifted from um, doing things out of obligation and uh, the need to, 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 to prove that you could or, you know, which may not have been, you know, always what you realized you were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to, to a space where we just started to say no, actually. And that comes back to that kind of boundaries thing. We start to say, no, we're not prepared to do that. No, this is the kind of work we want to do. And while people may not have understood it, um, and we got a lot of criticism for it. And still probably And don't. still probably don't, yeah. I think coming outside <laughs> of leaving your homeland... Um, and, and coming outside and being here in New York for a while, for me, also sort of took me away from that space of needing the validation of, of people around me there. Because what I found here, which you don't really get when you come from a small island, is that people accept you at face value for who you are. So if I introduced myself here to somebody as a yoga teacher, they said, okay, yeah. But in Jamaica, it would be like all of the story. But I thought you were doing this. How come you're doing this now? Oh, again, you've changed? Oh, don't you girls choose? You know, it's just always this, this, these voices that become your voices that you don't even realize are in your head until, until you have a little bit of a distance from it. 
So I think that's that that after that period of 2012 to, to now, it is we've completely shifted how we work together, how we engage with each other, and the type of work that we're prepared to do. That is really powerful. It's particularly powerful to me as I negotiate these you know, new waters for me, having done something that I'm so passionate about, and then looking forward to figure out exactly how I move forward to do more things that I'm really passionate about. You know, the transition time is always... Um, you know, Rocky's not the right word, but questioning. There's just a lot of questioning that goes into um, what's the right thing, you know, how much of just staying in motion is important because they always say, uh, you know, an object in motion stays in motion, it's a good thing. How, how much is good to actually stop? Mm-hmm. Because when you stop, that's when you could begin to say no. If you're in motion, it's very hard to say no. Yes. So, um To me, what you've just said is very, very powerful. We're going to take a quick break, um, and we'll be right back after a message from uh, our sponsors. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the Communications Director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the eight-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has a superior heat retention of cast iron but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecruset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. Welcome back. It's Dana Cowan, and you are listening to an episode of Speaking Broadly, where I have the extraordinary sisters Michelle and Suzanne Rousseau, who are in New York City from Jamaica to with their book, Provisions. And we've talked a lot about the human side of the book, about their ancestors, about how the book came to be. And now I want to talk about food, because I was reading the book in bed, and I got so hungry. And I was like, <laughs> I in, instead of actually just, you know, I read all the stories, but I started making a marketing list. I was like, <laughs> I actually, you know, so many of these things are so easy, I can just go out and buy them tomorrow. And I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to make the topping. I wanted to make like a, a green stew, you know, with all of the, like, we don't have necessarily Callaloo, but there's a lot of options for of green stews and the, and the tubers. And I was like, the list was getting very long. So um, I, I think one of the great things is your book expanded my mind uh, in terms of what people are eating at home in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Um, because the times that I've been in Jamaica, I've been in hotels sure. or at um, roadside hotels, of course, serve basically continental food. They don't really serve the island food and sometimes they serve ingredients from the island but often not um sort of disappointingly to me um 
But then the roadside, as you were saying earlier, is, is a small fraction of, I mean, to you, it's probably even less than a fraction of what you would eat. You'd eat jerk on the way to the airport, or I always eat jerk on the way to the airport. <laughs> we, we, we eat after a fete or a party or yeah. driving to the country on a Sunday yeah. or in the country, we'd go and get jerky for a yeah. beach or, you know, it's just different, different. We eat it differently. And I think um, we eat you know, I think it's really unfortunate that we don't serve more of our own ingredients in the hotels because I think that's one of the things that Michelle and I have a pet peeve about that we have these incredible ingredients available to us yet we sanitize the food for the, yeah. the, the, the foreign guests that are coming here when most of them want to have authentic authentic I ingredients mean, prepared authentic ways. Absolutely. So um, from the book, if someone wants to have a, a taste of Jamaica... Of course, the whole book is a taste of Jamaica, but there's also, you know, there's some Asian influence and there's some Pan-Caribbean. And if, but if I wanted to make something that felt authentically Jamaican to you, which um, recipe would you choose to say, okay, here's my ancestor in this dish. Here's the land or the ingredient. Um, what dish would that be? It's a very, very, very good question. Indeed. Give me a minute to think about that. And so the book is vegetarian, vegetarian. and there's, so there's, well, there's no meat in the book, but I think it's also just out of respect to the culture where there was so little meat available, right? Right. There's a little bit of salted fish, there's a little bit of meat, but the animals were few and far between, very valuable for other things that they produced. And and typically the, the, the typical diet or what we know as a Caribbean diet evolved from what would have been the slave diet. And the slave diet was largely built around roasted provisions and small amounts of salted and cured fish or meat um, and one pot stews and so I think you know while fresh produce was a, and fresh proteins were available on the island it would have been you know islands they would have been consumed mostly in the great houses by the planters themselves um, and uh, that is a part of the diet that we felt we wanted to, to, to be true to in the book in that building it around those those kinds of ingredients so to go to the ancestor question <laughs> give me some time I'm still, yeah, I'm like, I'm are you stuck. thinking about it yes i am but i think what that, that made me think of one thing that maybe would be yeah. the roasted provisions with pickles would be a very um that would be honoring the ancestors because we still eat it that way today in many 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 restaurants homes whatever they would take the whole roasted you know this whole sweet potato the whole breadfruit and just roast it on a flame and serve that with a little bit of butter and salt um, or this pickles is, is, a, is a pickle from Haiti, so we always have a lot of pickles. I also think that, okay, now that I've thought about it, yes. like, oh my God. It's good, there's two of you. <laughs> um, I, I do think that any of the fritters on the fritter platter, mm-hmm. the acra, are extremely traditional um, in ways of serving a light snack. We, we, we eat fritters in every form in the Caribbean. Saltfish fritters in the habit they call it acra in Trinidad, but this platter that is a mix of all the different kinds of um, root vegetables, dasheen and cocoa, and you know there's a corn and um, corn and coconut one. There's the acra. All of those things are not only are they extremely old, but they are essentially traditional. And whether it's in Trinidad, it's in Jamaica, it's Guyana, it's Dominica, you're gonna get them. And so I, all of those fritters. I mean, it's a regular thing on a Sunday morning to have someone flat frying fritters in your house, banana fritters. My mm. grandmother made that standardly for breakfast. Saltfish fritters. So the fritters are extremely old and extremely traditional. Okay, so that's like, I'm horrible at frying things because they come out either greasy or not crispy. Um, what's the secret to the perfect fritter? Pan fried. Pan fried, fry, not deep fried. A little bit of oil and just pan fry. So a lot of the times we they, they, they put too much oil. Yeah. And an- another very typical thing too, which I would say is... is the Caribbean in a bottle would be all the chutneys. Yeah. yeah. And you know, pickles. and all of those, and the pickles and the chutneys and, and, and the jams. And, and we have a recipe in there for cocoa bread that we've, we've kind of modernized by putting some cheese on it. But in Jamaica, and if you've ever come to Jamaica, you know that cocoa bread, we use that recipe in our restaurant and do fresh baked cocoa bread. And you know that you'll eat a patty with cocoa bread. That's the thing, as a high school, when you're in high school and you're a student and you don't care about calories, (laughs) um, and people still do it now, you get a patty and a cocoa bread and they open the cocoa bread and And stick the patty patty. in it and eat them together. It is insanely fattening, but insanely (laughs) delicious. (laughs) The thing about cocoa bread too is that it has butter layered in. So it ha- it's folded over and it's like it's like a hard dough bread, which is like they've 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 ye- they've kneaded it enough that there's not there's very the dough is hard, so it has but they put the fat in there. Oh, it's really good. <laughs> so who taught the two of you to cook? 
Oh my goodness. Um, I think we just were home cooks that learned. My mother was a great cook. Um, my mother cooked and entertained all the time. My father was always bringing people home unannounced. Um, when we lived in Trinidad, <laughs> she did a lot of culinary courses because she wasn't able to work because she didn't have a work permit. So she was always doing these dinner parties with Peking duck for 20 and all of these wow, elaborate yes. Chinese meals and, and, you know, this fantastic Guyanese pepper pot when we lived in Trinidad mm. that everybody would sort of be vying for. And my grandmothers were both great cooks. Manga of the yeah. Matilda Briggs fame was an amazing cook. And so we kind of grew up around a lot of cooking and entertaining. And so, I mean, I can't even remember when, but I remember being cooking, like even when I was in my teens, cooking at home and cooking for like my grandmother's 80th birthday party for, you know, 60 people coming over and having dinner parties while we were at university, university for our friends. Mm -hmm. We do Easter Sunday lunch at university and, and teas where we make fresh scones and things like that. We just, we just had, we always wanted to be, um, you know, involved in, in entertaining and food in some way, even if we weren't always cooking the food ourselves. And and our dad was in um, hospitality, so he had um, some restaurants when we were growing up. So And my grandfather was the FC, so I was always around the the, the, the sort of the money food side. Yeah. Then, What's, oh, is that a financial control? Financial right? control, yes, the money, yes, money yes. guy? Yeah. The money guy. So, so we, yeah. we, we just grew up around, around I think we grew up around food and entertainment and entertaining at home. And the fact that my dad was both in the hotel and restaurant business um, also furthered that, even though we didn't really think about that when we went into the business. And I think we were always cooking. We took a trip with some friends. We took a trip with our parents sort of while we were in university to Italy. And I remember um, they took off and went doing off what they were doing and left us with some Jamaican connected friends, some Italians in Rome who took us with them to their to grandmother, their Nona. Nona and Forte de Marmi <gasps> and they cooked with us and Nona cooked with us and we came home and we were making bruschetta the way they did and fava beans and, <laughs> and we were like, we need to plant a rosemary bush. <laughs> you know, rosemary. <laughs> we were always cooking, cooking and, and, and you know, came home and I remember my, my father, my mother stopped going to the supermarket when I came back from university because I began going and doing the cooking at home. So it was just sort of something that we did. We didn't really think about it really hard. I think we were lucky enough to be exposed that we had traveled um, when we were young with them and traveled and had a lot of good restaurants, exposure to good food. So we just sort of went into it thinking about the kinds of food we like to eat when we travel that we didn't feel you could get in Jamaica. Okay, so if someone goes to your house, you guys are obviously top of the line entertainers like next time i go to jamaica i'm knocking on your door and i want to know like what so if you put together like a few recipes from the book because you someone's coming over i love the that your mother was clearly prepared for all those people to drop in mm -hmm. My nightmares are dreams. You know, you have ancestors in your dreams. In my dreams, I have people knocking on the door. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot there's people coming for dinner. What is in my pantry? I have sardines. I have tomatoes. I have, you know, I just, I've had these dreams where I'm just, it's obviously an anxiety dream. Like, what am I going to feed these people? Yes. Yeah, not being prepared. But um, what are you always prepared to serve? And what are those recipes in your book that somebody, like, without, you know, having to do the marketing like the list I was making in bed last night, what should they make? Hmm. It's a very good question. I would think, I know. I For me, from the book for, per se, I would probably do um, one, I would probably do one or two of the salads because there are some amazing salads. I would probably throw on either the, the, the kale salad that we do in that yeah, book is fantastic. Um, and what, probably, describe it. It's a kale and quinoa salad that we, which obviously kale is very popular, but kale with quinoa, but we, um, and you, we took the sorrel buds that are, the sorrel is what we cook. We make the drink at Christmas time, which is what you call hibiscus. Yeah, hibiscus. Roselle's here. We candied them. I mean, I think we've candied them in this and tossed all together with nuts and, um, a limey vinaigrette. It's delicious. It's, um, and feta. I would probably do that. And I would probably take a salmon side and season it with just fresh herbs, or zest of orange, garlic, and I roast the whole salmon in the oven. Then I would probably do some planting. Mm -hmm. We have this planting gratin that's great. Mm -hmm. My yeah. go-to would be for entertaining that some planting gratin. And then I would probably throw a starch on there, like maybe roasted sweet potato or with some like garlicky butter or olive oil and salt. Something simple like that. So you have protein, we have veg, we have something essentially Caribbean and a platter of pear, obviously. Yes. Obviously. Avocado. And just to remind anyone, right, who wasn't there at the beginning, 
The pear is an avocado. Yeah, <laughs> I would say very similar. I would say some sort of roasted or grilled protein. Um, it could be a, a beef tenderloin. It could be it could be you know chicken that you put on the barbecue. Um, one of my favorite dishes in the book is this because I'm obsessed with plantain. But um, is this plantain um, gratin which she mentioned? But it is layered with a bechamel sauce. Wow. Um, and it has Rich. goat's cheese and it's it's really really good with a little panko on the top. But other than that, there's a fantastic eggplant dish in there. That oh, you guys just, love eggplant. We love eggplant. So it's just, you, you pan sear, pan fry the eggplant, um, roasted tomatoes on top, a little bit of feta, some cilantro, a little bit of scotch bonnet oil, and that's also fantastic. So so, so that sounds like your your trip to Italy came back to the kitchen, yes. but it met some yeah. uh, scotch bonnet oil. That trip to Italy was extremely foundational for us in, I think, our sort of understanding of cooking simple alfresco Mediterranean cuisine, but bringing that back to Jamaica because there was really so much similar similarity into the lifestyle. And while all the ingredients we could get, it was very formative in how we started to look at food and preparing food. This is before we went into the restaurant. And so I think when we started the restaurant, we really took a lot of that sort of that experience and that sort of consciousness into how we wanted to cook cuisine, the cuisine, but using our ingredients and maybe some of our own local flavors. So I think it actually would be very, very, very <laughs> point, I, well, good point there. What I would say too is that, um, you know, in the research um, side of things, in the ingredient part of it, we found that there were so many ingredients that were, were used and present in, in markets in the Caribbean in like the late 1800s and mid 1800s that we didn't know about. And they refer often to sweet pot herbs. Sweet pot <gasps> herbs were marjoram, mint, thyme. You know, those are very aromatic sort of, you know, Mediterranean type herbs. You know, they had eggplants, they call them melangen or, you know, and they had purple garden eggplant, egg. They, or garden egg in Jamaica. So all of these ingredients mm. are present. We just cook them in one particular way. So what we felt when we were doing the book is that, okay, if we're going to do an ingredient focused book, all the things that people perceive as Caribbean ingredients are not from the region anyway, i.e. the salt cod comes from the northern Atlantic. You know, you have your, your ackee is from Africa. You have, you know, breadfruit is from Tahiti. So why would it be that you would say that, you know, eggplant or tomato or mint or marjoram is not... Would be off the you menu. Know, would be off the menu. Yeah. So we, we brought a lot of that in, but our favorite forms of preparation are always Mediterranean because we just think of the, of the lifestyle. Um, we live outside, we dine outside, we entertain it's outside, it's hot. It's oh, sounds great yes, as, it, it, as it's yeah. winter right know, now as we're is. talking. Okay, so the, um, the last question, speaking broadly, is always paying it forward. Because in the way that you've paid it forward with the book to, your, to the female lineage, um, I love paying it forward to the women in the world of food. Um, is there anyone uh, who you'd like to call out, someone who is a a teacher or a colleague or a, a friend in the world of food who you think all of the listeners of Speaking Broadly should learn about? Mm. Very good question. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, we've been, we've been supported by many women along our path, so it's, it's, it's always hard to, 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 to identify one. Um, certainly, Julia Tertian has been, you know, uh, in, in very much a supporter and, and, and very generous in, in spirit towards us in, in terms of just, you know, involving us in, in projects that she's working on and things like that. Can you think of anyone? Um, I would say, I think there is, it's worth, I mean, it's, it's hard to, some of them are gone, but there were some sort of pioneers in the culinary world sure, of the yes. Caribbean long before it was sexy to be in food. I mean, um, Enid Donaldson did one of the first um, Jamaican cookery books back in, I don't know, maybe the 60s or early 70s that we used as something that we cook from daily. When we were, when we were away at university and longing out for home, we looked at her recipes. Um, Norma Shirley. Norma Shirley was oh, Norma at Shirley, a restaurant, excellence and a beautiful cook and an amazing amazing woman um she did collaborate on a cookbook with rosemary parkinson another um you know i think forerunner in sort of the world of culinary and 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 you know um and and books in in um the caribbean region at large um is it caribbean Niam Jamaica. Yes, Niam Jamaica. And she had another book called caribbean culinaria they i think certainly were leaders i mean before it was like you know 
the in thing and I think they did and they're women that are just you know like noteworthy and um worthy of just you know mention I think that's great now I want to go um go look them up and I there are so many women lost to history and bringing up those I mean yes it's for me I'm always thinking about the people who are present to pay it for too but I love the New York Times is um finding women who've been passed over in every arena Mm -hmm. but I'm of course particularly fascinated about those in food so if people want to um by the book that's easy to do online but if they want to follow you how, where do they follow you on social so we have um our social media for our restaurant in jamaica is at summer house ja um i am uh, we also are at two sisters and a meal and um and we have a website www.twosistersandameal.com and our restaurant website is www.summerhouse.com fan summer house ja well no <laughs> yes i think it's summer house yes Mm-hmm. I think. Okay. Well, I have a feeling that if you <laughs> Google Summer House Jamaica, yes. we're going to find the yes. WWW really quickly. Yes. Okay. And um, right now we're at the end of uh, the winter season, and I'm ex- I want to invite all of you listeners to um, donate to heritage radio network so we can have another year of amazing food radio i don't know how many of the shows you've listened to on heritage but um you should take a listen go to the website there's so much information there's so many incredible hosts and we need your support so if you want to support us go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate and any amount helps keep this incredible food radio on the air. So that's it for me. It's Dana signing off. You know where to find me at FW Scout on Twitter and on Instagram. And I'll be back next week. Have a really great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.